a big Nick Nitro fan. I just gotta say it. Yeah. Right yeah. up top. Destroy all Gordonites. Right? All Gordons and Gordonites. No, don't destroy oh, the Gordon. Man. For the planet Gordon. No, oh, Gord no. Gun. Gord Gun. Oh, I came in armed to do something oh, else. Oh, no. no you, had a, you had a whole bit about Gordons, I, I huh? Was gonna, I was gonna destroy the Gordonites. We're gonna go to Oregon and find my home. <laughs> got this going, toy right? boat that I'm going to sail off in. Off to Valhalla. Yeah, it's apparently. <laughs> there's there, look. Okay, there's no way that toy boat makes it further than like what a mile. Uh, no, no, a mile is pretty optimistic. Oh, I'm being generous. I don't know. I mean, I would. I like to believe in the sentient. Oh, it hits toys. one rock and it's done. plastic, they're, right? They're so, so fucked. It's yeah. plastic and it's got pieces. It can't be watertight. Well, I think the boat's, I think wood. The boat's wood. The boat's yeah. a nice boat. Is it wood? Yeah. Yeah. Did you see all of his his dad's woodworking tools? Oh, he did have a lot of. I mean, the mast was wood because he he's very proud of that boat. Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure he the, needed a coping saw. No, That's I'm an sure. old fashioned toy. That's made the good way. Yeah, I'm sure it's uh, seaworthy. I'm That's just... made in America. Oh my! Oh well, hey, we'll talk about that. And Hello more. again, and welcome to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in the film studies course. This week's film is Joe Dante's Small Soldiers. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Dalton. I'm still Arthur. And uh, this movie's a treat. Yeah, can you tell I'm excited? Uh, are you? Oh, yeah. Oh. You hear it in his voice. Oh, it's just so nice when you go revisit something and it holds up. Every time you pull a string, he says something else. Yeah. There's a snake in my boot. <laughs> There's a snake. So uh, we're going to be doing this thing that we always do, and what we always do is this. We spoil things because this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that means that um, the, pro- mean? the, the process by which we go through – I had a weird headphone thing happen to me just yeah, now. Yeah, I could tell. I was keeping you on track. Though. Tripped me out. Yeah, I could tell it freaked you out. I was keeping you in the pocket. I, well, I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll spoil the ending of this film, which involves Valhalla and boats um, or Yosemite. Yeah, we've already spoiled parts of it. But what we'll do is we'll generally kind of avoid it um, to greater extents, to greater extremity of spoilerage as the show goes on. Synopsis, spoiler-free. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Mild spoilers. The game, more general spoilers. And then finally, when we get down to business, and that is analysis, it is all spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. Yeah, point is, if you're worried about uh, plot details for a 21-year-old movie, uh, you got like 10, 15 minutes before we start uh, stop caring about spoilers. Small soldiers should definitely be rated R because now I can drink legally. Oh, wow. Wow. That's See? weird to think about. Old uh, we're old. One of those gins and tonics that it advertises. <laughs> it does. It does advertise. Those. There's a lot of advertising in this movie. Um, so um, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's hear that synopsis, please. When defense contractor Globotech takes over a small toy company, CEO Gil Mars sets his sights on the company's first marquee toy line. He recruits the toy company's two most noted developers, Larry and Irwin, to see what they can come up with. The answer? A toy that plays back. Larry's commando elite are a G.I. Joe-adjacent troop of army men on steroids. And what does an army need? Camouflage? No. An army needs enemies. Enter Irwin's Gorgonites, a ragtag group of primitive extraterrestrials devoted to finding their home. With the toys in development and a quick turnaround pushing them ahead, Larry decides to find the best microchip he can to implement the playback idea, a military microprocessor designed for weapons systems. As the shipments go out, young Alan Abernathy strikes a deal with one of Globotech's delivery men to attempt to sell a few of the modern toys out of his father's very traditional non-tech toy shop. Alan soon realizes the toys have a mind of their own and gets caught up in the middle of the war between commando elites and Gorgonites. Will he be able to play peacekeeper, or will the commando elite seize the day? 
Joe Dante's 1998 action comedy puts a dark twist on the Toy Story idea. Pulling heavily from his 80s classic Gremlins, Dante assembles a who's who of 90s actors and voice talent to bring his satirical look at private sector forces to life. That feels like an A. Gordon original. It was. Hell yeah. 100%. Very, very good, sir. That was delicious. Well, let's get right down to it, gentlemen. Um, do we like this movie or do we not? Um, Dalton's giving stuff away, so he gets to go later. So, Arthur, you get to go Ooh, first. Shots fired. Yeah, I mean, this is a, an apt punishment. I'll sit over here. You, you uh, spoiled yourself. Dustin was just uh, launching some uh, sleeping aids off of a, a mouse trap, so Dalton wouldn't talk for at least two seconds. So we've got a, we've got a quick break here. Uh, I really... Uh, I really think this is a solid movie. I do. I, I think that uh, I, we did Gremlins a long time ago, um, and we didn't really have a lot of favorable things to say about the film at that time. We were kind of uh, negative on it. And, and I really think Dante polishes a lot of the things he does there here. Uh, structurally, I think this is the same movie. I mean, you got a lot of the same ideas at play, uh, and uh, I think it works a lot better here. I think it's a much more consistent film. I think we've got a stellar voice cast. I love Frank Langella. I love Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, we got the crew from the right stuff voicing the uh, the Commando Elite. We've got Spinal Tap voicing uh, the, the Gorgonites. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dirty Dozen. And uh, we've got all that coming together in a great uh, just show of, of voicemanship. And uh, you you couple that with the the fun Phil Hartman's and Jay Mars and David Cross's and Kirsten Dunst. 90s to the bones, man. Yeah, it, it's it's all right there. And, and so I think it's a lot of fun. I think it holds up uh, surprisingly well. I think visually it holds up very well. Uh, Stan Winston's designs of the, the characters are great. Uh, the effects uh, are surprisingly good. I, I, there were a few times when the animation was a little wonky, but I think for the most part it holds up. Uh, the biggest sign of age is the, the personal computers uh, in everybody's home. That Microsoft classic, and Carta. Yeah, uh, that classic thing. It's a good um, joke. But uh, I, I, I dig it. I think it's solid. I think it's got a little too much fat uh, towards the middle of the second act. I think it kind of feels like it's wrapping up, and then you're like, oh, there's 30 minutes left in this movie. Um, but once we get to that final showdown, I think it's just a lot of fun. It's having a blast. Uh, I think it does as much as it can with its setup and its premise. And, and for me, I, I yeah, I, I like it quite a bit. I think it's solid. Uh, I think it's better than Gremlins, and uh, I'll, I'll go from there. All right, better than Gremlins. What do you say, Dalton? I gotta say, I don't think Arthur Gordon's far off on this one, man. Uh, this is a good movie. Arthur, I'm gonna quibble with the fat just because uh, I think the movie earns being uh, a little long in the tooth in the middle because it is 15 minutes in, uh, and the toys are on the loose and ready for combat. Uh, we get through a lot real quick. Uh, we dispense with the, uh, the Globotech, uh, exposition real quick and get to, uh, Old Alan Abernathy just rolling around on his bicycle uh, trying to talk to Kirsten Dunst. And what do you know? These toys are going to kill him. It's great. I mean, 15 minutes in, uh, we we know the stakes. We know what is at play. And the film just like does such a great job of adding more and more stakes throughout. Like, so quickly does it tell you what the danger is. And I think with Gremlins, you know, we, we talked about tone a lot in that. And it just... It's interesting to me that there seems to have been... Arthur, you mentioned something you saw uh, Roger Ebert said about this film about him not being sure who it's for. And uh, I find that interesting because I feel like Gremlins is less sure who it's for in a weird oh, way. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. this Grim Gremlins is stuck between being made for a 10-year-old's by a 40-year-old, or however old Dante was at the time. This feels decidedly for 12-year-olds. Uh, but it makes the violence uh, 
real in the same way Gremlins does, which I think is really interesting. Very quickly, somebody's cut and bleeding, but at the same time, it's a little less graphic and a little less uh, scary than Gremlins. So I think it navigates that tone just a lot better. Um, it, it just has such an understanding of all of its characters, too, in a way that I think is fun. And I don't just mean the human beings, actually them less so. <laughs> I think the toys, it understands what is funny about an archetype in terms of a toy. Uh, Chip Hazard, uh, who, as Arthur mentioned, is voiced magnificently by Tommy Lee Jones, speaks primarily in aphorisms, and it's incredible. Yeah. It, it's so good. Well, whereas, and again, establishing the difference between our villainous toys and our good toys, uh, Frank Langella speaks mostly in uh, questions and things that sound maybe deep. And uh, we just very quickly, we establish this dichotomy between the, uh, the sets of toys at play. It does a great job of introducing danger yeah, it shows all the woodshop toys pretty early. Um, we see these tennis balls in a garage that end up coming back into play in a huge way in the third act. Like, just all kinds of fun stuff like that. The satellite dish at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. It just, it plants its seeds so well, it tends its garden and grows uh, a forest so it can set it on fire and burn it down. It's fun. It's a good time. Uh, and I can't wait till we get into analysis and uh, cut this open a little bit deeper. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I mean, how could I not like a sequel to Child's Play that is also a prequel to the MCU um, first Avenger film? And also In which prequel. the ghost of Tommy Lee Jones' character is imbued oh God, into right. the body of a doll. You're absolutely right. It, it, that's, a, that, that's the new headcanon for this film. Yeah, I like to imagine Phil Coulson and uh, Nick Fury are right around the corner uh, <laughs> at the end of this movie. Right. Now, that was a stinger at the end. You didn't see that? Oh, shit, I missed it. Uh, you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Jackson says, hold on to your butts and it, it's weird it also gets to be a prequel for the new child's play because apparently oh, yeah. uh, this is kind of the plot of the new yeah. one right yep that was gonna be one of my uh, syllabi picks Ooh, well, well we'll talk more about that in a moment more on that anon yes indeed but yeah i mean it's a lot of fun it's a great movie um i think and it, i do think it's more successful than uh the, the the titular you know the sort of more iconic gremlins um yes indeed the mogwai toy is very cute and it i mean i think the tone that is trying to skirt between is this sort of fantasy story um, where there's these sort of fairy tale kind of rules that you have to obey, and if you disobey those rules, then you are punished by them. And, uh, you know, working that into something more of a horror film, and Dante has a much more difficult time sort of navigating those things, as opposed to simply a, uh, you know, kind of an action thriller kind of story that's also, you know, geared towards children. Um, and I think that is easier for him to navigate just by definition of what genres we're playing with. But also, I think his hand is just much, much more deft, his experience is definitely um, showing here. All the performances, as we've already said, are great. Um, I love Sarah Michelle Geller and Christina Ricci as the... Uh, the Gwen dolls. The Gwen dolls. So good. Which the- is... Fantastic. Did, did you have to look that up, or did you recognize them by ear? I, I recognized Sarah Michelle Gellar by ear, but I did not know Christina Ricci. Same. I, I had to look up who else. I was like, that's voices. Buffy! Yeah, I uh, knew, uh, knew Buffy immediately. I was yeah. like, but it's not all, all Buffy, so yeah. I was kind of like, Tara Strong, what's going on yeah. here? I didn't know. Fun voice cameos. And I love that the credits sort of start with just those uh, voice credits for the Dirty Dozen guys, yeah. and uh, for uh, Christina Ricci, and for uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. And so, yeah, I mean, that's all fantastic. I think, again, tonally, it's much more even and um unlike gremlins it is thematically it knows what it's doing gremlins is sort of this weird hodgepodge of possible yep. thematic mm-hmm. readings yeah. and thematic understandings of what's what's yeah, happening that whole there. thing with phoebe cates is wild yeah we talked about that i'm proud of us for clocking that in the first uh like what one of our first 10 episodes we clocked this is weird 
Yeah, and, it, and it's sort of a miss there. Um, and again, just what do you, what are the gremlins themselves? You know, what is, you know, Stripe about? What is, uh, you know, Gizmo about? Those kind of things. It's, it's a lot more difficult to sort of navigate what's happening there because it is a little bit uneven in, uh, the screenwriting and in also just the sort of visual language of the film. Uh, this film knows what it is taking on and it knows what it's wanting to say mm-hmm. and fully understands where it's going thematically. And I think in that sense, it's a much wiser film uh, and, and a wiser, I mean, maybe just a wiser filmmaker at this point in Joe Dante's career. Mm-hmm. And so for my money, yeah, it's better because it because of those things and those reasons. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro regarding this. Now, here is the dream job where you have managed to get small soldiers onto an a, a academically approved syllabi. Oh, yeah. Uh, the provost said, oh, yeah. Put small soldiers on, and uh, the, the department chair has also agreed to this. What is the department? What are you doing? What are you teaching? And how are you expanding the syllabus if you're teaching small soldiers for a week to um, small students? Uh, I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Uh, I want to do something uh, with children in danger. Uh, now, for the purposes of keeping this... Uh, I just like to put children in danger. Don't say that on the air. That's we par- know. It's just parenting. Is that true? That's not true. Oh, you go hiking, you put children in danger. You go fishing, oh, you take a oh trip. And all you do is put children in danger. What that, the fuck? That's, that's all that's parenting. parenting. Real. Yeah, yeah, putting them in danger and then keeping them from it. You take a kid to a baseball game oh where they can be hit in the head with yeah. a with this foul ball. I mean, You just changed my world. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so we don't have to talk about every single movie featuring parenting and children ever made. Let's set some parameters. We're going to talk about children in uh, danger from, you know, the spooky things. Uh, you, you, your, your extraterrestrials, your monsters, your goblins, your ghouls, uh, what, what have you. So I, I, I really think that we, it lets us play with some fun stuff because there seems to be this trend among children's stories where, uh, and this is true of any story about children written by adults, that uh, there, there's a certain amount of when does this, this character stop feeling like a child and when do they start feeling like an adult. And for some reason it seems to be that... Uh, Spooky films get it right a little bit better, and I wonder if that's just the genre element, but for, for some reasons it's, that seems to be the case. Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about uh, films that feature children in peril from things beyond. Uh, let's just open up with uh, everybody's uh, favorite show du jour of the moment, Stranger Things. I think it's a good place to start because it kind of covers a lot of groundwork very quickly because uh, the 80s is the heyday of the Children in Danger movie. So we, we watch Stranger Things, maybe, uh, let's call it two, three episodes. We don't go through a full season. Uh, just quick enough to establish the tropes of the genre, I think. It really, again, it's going to act as a, a hub uh, for it. But again, we're going to keep trying to pair it with small soldiers and think about um, what does this Child Siege movie look like. And obviously, we've talked about it enough at this point. We've got to watch Gremlins 2. We, we also have to, uh, I mean Gremlins as well, not Gremlins 2, the new batch. Yeah, different movie, not about children in danger. <laughs> that movie is wild. And we'll talk more about the lessons Dante learned on Gremlins 2 that he brought to small soldiers for sure. Uh, but yeah, Gr- Gremlins is good. I mean, I don't want anybody to think we hate Gremlins. It's, it's good. It's interesting. It's fine. It's just kind of tonally a mess and isn't really about anything, but it's a fun Christmas horror movie. And God, how many of those are there? Um, Not and, nearly enough. And I think using a, a film where the leads are teens as opposed to children kind of lets, again, us talk about another flavor of how does this dynamic function? How, how do films deal with the idea of children in peril? Some of them just kind of ignored the real danger children are in. Um, say what you will about Gremlins. I don't think you can say it about that film uh, just because of, uh, as we've mentioned, there's some weird grimness on the margins in that that 
that story. Um, so I, I think that does a really good job of establishing uh, the very, very real danger. Stranger Things less so. I feel like even in the like this most recent season, it slowly but surely, the more you watch, the more you're like, man, these kids have seen a lot of violence and are okay participating in murder. They are little baby sociopaths. They are. They've seen a lot of violence, and most of them have had head injuries at this point. This is not a good recipe. <laughs> So, again, I think Gremlins takes that a little bit more seriously despite its tonal issues, and it'll be a great, great place to go. Finally, let's close it out with the most wholesome of all child endangerment films, E.T. It's good and nutritious and I think does probably the best job of being a children in peril movie that is about feelings. Um, I think all these films uh, that we've mentioned so far are either about ideas or not really about a whole lot. I I think E.T. is kind of a gold standard. It's not a film that I, I really love that much. I like it a lot. I know, I know. I just didn't watch it until I was older. Uh, I appreciate it. I can tell why it's had like cultural longevity. Um, but I think the thing that is really, really special about it, that preamble out of the way, is the fact that it does it really engage primarily with feelings. Now, it, mostly Elliot's. It could stand to be about more people's feelings, but uh, I think everybody in that core family gets a tiny bit of exploration. And I think that's at the end of the day, the, the ideal, the platonic ideal of a family in danger, uh, film or child in danger is you use that danger. You use those stakes to make the family process the emotions that have already been established to be under the surface. Uh, small soldiers got a little bit of that. We'll talk about it when we get further in, but ET is kind of the gold standard. Um, so that's a great place to close out that syllabus. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, Mr. Arthur Gordon, how would you expand your syllabus? Yeah, so I'm going to look primarily at uh, the toys in uh, in the popular culture, uh, and I'm going to start uh, with the toys that made us, the Netflix documentary series uh, spanning two seasons, like eight episodes, I think, a uh, really quick watch to, to go through. Uh, but it's just a fascinating look at the toy industry and some of our most uh, popular toy lines, G.I. Joe, Masters of the Universe, Barbie, uh, Lego, Star Wars, you know, I mean, they're all there. Uh, and it's just a fascinating look. Each episode takes a look at a different property uh, to see how these things are developed. You know, a bunch of people sitting around in boardrooms trying to figure out how we're going to make money uh, and looking at the people that kind of got looked over or walked past uh, when they present their ideas. You look at Masters of the Universe, and I think there's a lot of Irwin's character in that that story. And I think it's just really interesting to set the groundwork for this. Uh, then you're going to fast forward to 1995. Where we're going to talk about Toy Story. Uh, which definitely, I think, lays the seeds for this one uh, because this play is like a much more demented version of Toy Story and really kind of takes that similar premise and ups the ups the stakes quite a bit. And it, I, it certainly seems like Joe Dante had the idea for this movie taking uh, one of his children to see Toy Story, right? Yeah, it's, it's got to be birthed out of that. It's like Toy Story meets Gremlins, and I think that definitely uh, works. And so Toy Story, you know, uh, just the the influence of Pixar, the technology of the time, what it did as the first fully CGI film, you know, feature length film, uh, was just so impressive. And so, Toy Story has to be the talking point there. Uh, from then, I'm going to talk about 2019's Child's Play, the the reboot, uh, because uh, as Dalton mentioned earlier and alluded to, that film has a very similar premise to what we see here with this kind of amped up microprocessor AI inside of a toy uh, and it's learning and it learns all the wrong things from the pop culture that surrounds it. Uh, and I think it's just a lot of fun. Mark Hamill is a great uh, voice there. And uh, how's he do? Solid... He's good. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's, he's rock solid. He's Mark Hamill doing voice yeah. work. I mean, I mean, if you're going to replace Brad Dwarf with anybody, Mark Hamill seems yeah. like a safe bet. Yeah. And I, I really dug that movie quite a bit. I, I liked what it was doing. Uh, just kind of the, it, it takes a little different work uh, to set up the, 
the reasoning that the the AI gets tweaked the way it does uh, to the extreme, but uh, I think there's a lot of similarities and parallels there. And then finally, I'm going to recommend a video game. I know that's usually Dalton's bag, Whoa, cool. but when I was looking at these Commando Elite, I'm like, these character models look real familiar. These huge, bulked-up soldiers on steroids, and I could only help but think of Gears of War. Wow! And so okay. I would go play through uh, the Gears of War with uh, Mr. Phoenix and uh, have a good time with that. Okay, now I just have a question, because I want to think out this thought experiment. How do you do video game play in an academic environment? Do you assign kids to do t- play at home, or do you set up you know, the console in the classroom yes. and you play? Yes. Well, I guess it depends on the class. I mean, do you have one of those like four-hour night classes? Because like a seminar, an hour yeah. of that's going to be video gaming. Heck yeah! Yeah, I, I, I've had a couple of theories about this. Obviously, since I brought up games a couple of times, uh, YouTube's a good safe bet for this, right? Yeah, you just get, watch get, some playthroughs, some playthroughs, some cutscene compilations. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe like have it on the syllabus as an addendum. Yeah, if somebody's like failing the class, like if you play through this game and like write a paper about the game that was kind of supplemental. All right, we'll bump your grade up a little bit. That's what we'll do. I just I don't do extra credit. I just think I do. uh, I'm generous. The troop in Gears of War looks so much like Commando Elite. Yeah, that's really what's. I mean, because they've got that very. I mean, that armor uh, that doesn't seem to obey the laws of and uh, these boys are just thick. Hmm. They're just walking multi triceps and quads. Yeah, so. uh, Uh, That's where I would go with my syllabi, I think. All right, very, very good. I appreciate that very much, Mr. Arthur yeah, Gordon. That's uh, The fact that Small Soldiers predicts that aesthetic is a uh, spot-on observation. Dustin, wh- which direction uh, are you going, man? What now, do you think? when we get to analysis, we're going to find a lot of possible thematic threads that we could deal with, but if I were using this film in any given syllabus, I'm thinking in a horror film class, and so I'm you know, calling this little segment or this section 10 shillings for the possessed toy. And uh, <laughs> just, oh, This is all possessed toys. It'd be all possessed toys all the time. Okay. And and so, you know, using that because the possession here is an AI possession, which is, I mean, something. And I think the Child's Play uh, reboot is doing that. But I'd also look at the original Child's Play. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to go. And it's sort of the first, not the first, but it's a first major sort of breakout mainstream moment where that occurs. And so that Brad Dourif's performance, I mean, there's some definite analogs between what's going on in Child's Play and Denzel Washington's Fallen, um, but um, that's another discussion altogether. And then um, a little little known um, fun fact, David S. Goyer Whoa. is the writer on uh, a particular franchise of demonic toy oh, yeah, stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is demonic toys, uh, where it goes full-out slasher mode uh, with that. And so uh, Goyer's original script for the uh, first installment of Demonic Toys would be something that we looked at. And finally, Annabelle uh, would be the selection there um, because of just Bloomhouse and what they're doing and uh, the use of uh, integrating that same sort of uh, real world with the Warrens. And mm-hmm. even though much of it's fictitious and, you know, tall tale Paul Bunyan kind of stuff, but also um, that interface with that and sort of just contemporary myths uh, regarding uh, Ouija boards and that kind of paranormal activity type stuff. I was going to ask you that. Is is that the direction you're going to take for a lot of it is like how does a, the, the particular spoop in this the, this film intersect with like our cultural dreads or? I, I think so. I mean, the cultural are you talking dreads. about why toys probably. And, and, and just asking the questions of what are we dealing with when we're talking about um, the sort of interface of the, the, the horrific in the – so there's the perversion factor. Yeah, and then there's also get around Candy Valley, yeah, for Candy sure. Value, and then and then the marketing thing. I mean, you know, it's Parker Brothers that produced the Ouija board, yeah. and so just talking about that—that's a children's toy, uh, which has been now imbued with all this sort of demonic um, 
uh, folklore on top of it. And so I think that'd just be interesting to discuss uh, in the course of a week uh, with students. And again, the segment is called um, 10 Shillings for the Possessed Toy because Shrek. I, uh, I sign off on that. And as your department head, I uh, sign off. No, oh, thank you very much. Um, I'm pretty sure my department head would not. Uh, I, you can teach that class for me. <laughs> I'll uh, enroll three dogs, uh, and you can teach them. Excellent. That's all I need is three, right? It so makes. I, I, that I, class I, makes. I, I, it makes. So <laughs> anyway, uh, there you go, dear listener. That's how your syllabus just got longer. Let's get down to business. It's business. All righty, gang. It is business time for show. Oof. And uh, okay, I want to. There's a lot of things. Let's let's do something fun. That's popcorn first. Okay. Yeah. 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 That, that I was thinking about I'm this. Say I had another fun fun up top easy one too. And, uh, so I'll drop a We're couple good. things and we'll just let you let us all popcorn in because there's tons okay. of this stuff within this movie. Yeah. So for, um um. <clears throat> Frederick Jameson's um, sort of aesthetic of the postmodern, uh, part of what that requires is the pastiche, which is the sort of cut and paste and the metatextual referentiality that you find in a lot of films. And I, I would say Small Soldiers, aesthetically, is absolutely in the world of pastiche in crazy ways. I mean, you know, you got Mr. Futterman coming back, you know, being the delivery truck driver. We've got the opening of the movie, which plays so much like the opening of Cabin in the Woods. That, right. Like it, yeah. It, it, stunned me i I almost like tried to find a way to get the cabin on the woods in the syllabus when i was figuring out what sort of syllabus i wanted to do but yeah it's weird and then it smash cuts to this leave to beaver town and it's it's, so it's anticipatory of things that happen uh later and it's also um you know reflexive on things that have happened before i would also point out frank lagella's casting um that's skeletor yeah from the masters of the universe film yeah right and so and and there 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 are tons and tons of these sort of little bits and pieces that are going on and the fact that the uh, david crosses uh, password is Gizmo. Yep. Oh so yeah. And there's a Gizmo in the dumpster. Is there? I didn't see yeah, that. There's a Gizmo doll in the dumpster. But even having the uh, the Dirty Dozen voicing, I mean, yeah. that's another element of that kind of well, intertextuality. I was just about to say, Tommy Lee Jones gets to do a uh, hen house, outhouse, and whorehouse rundown like he does in The Fugitive when they're looking for munitions or something. Well, it also feels like they're calling back to Patton when he's standing in front of the Oh, absolutely. Sure. Well, yeah. well, that in Apocalypse Now when he comes in the helicopter. Yeah. Actually, fun fact, the guy that did the score for Patton did the score for this movie, used a piece of his score for that scene. That's Patton. awesome. Yeah. That's money. But yeah, no, and obviously the helicopter with uh, Ride the Valkyrie. Yeah, so I mean, again, I just I wanted to name that and give you guys the opportunity. To sort of, we, we, it's one of the fun things about movie watching, and I think theoretically, I don't know that there's been a lot of writing on this. At least I have not explored that. But it seems to me that the analysis of the pastiche is simply the list making. These are the references that that's are. Just, yeah, in, that's just TVTrips.com. Yeah, yeah. It, it's well, I, I mean, and how does that inform your? I mean, inform the film's meaning as well. I mean, you think of a lot of this comes back to typecasting, but if you put Ray Liotta in a role, you're automatically going to think that that character is probably some sort of hood or sketchy person. Same I've with uh, Adam Scott. A, I mean, yeah. Adam Scott is uh, another character who he's got this role, at least in films, of kind of being a weasel or something. So if you see him, yeah. there's a question of what kind of integrity that character is going to have. And I think that can uh, influence the film as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, when... Uh... When Timothy Leary walks on, I said Timothy Leary, Dennis Leary uh, That's walks. That's a very different film. Yes, it is. When Dennis Leary's uh, junk walks on screen about when Dennis um, Hopper, <laughs> when his junk walks on screen about a minute before he does, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Dennis Leary. It's the '90s. I know what kind of character this is. Yeah. Well, that and um, Alan's dad, um, who's later in another uh, toys movie. Well, even Phil Hartman. I mean, as yeah, the neighbor, sure. I mean, he's got that. I mean, you think of was Jingle All the Way. I think he plays the same type of character. Oh, I think you're right. Um, but so I, I think you know this is that kind of 
conversation of, um, is it necessary to watch all the movies? No. But when you watch all the movies, I think it gives you a different take on the movies you watch. For sure. Uh, and this is something we talked about a long time ago when we talked about Gremlins, because there's a lot of those same elements where he's paying homage to all these classic movies. Uh, and this time, I think he pulls it off quite a bit better. Mm-hmm. And so I think it just adds to the the level of what we're seeing and what we take away from a piece. I'm a big fan, though, uh, overall of this take that postmodernism is just listing the things. Yeah, I know. At the I, end of the day, it's just listing the references. It well, it's a Tarantino like, thing, right? I mean, look. Now, I think that's only dealing with pastiche. Now, we can talk sure. about the, the, the postmodern sort of a distrust of meta narratives from Leotard or whatever, and that's that's a different story and a different kettle of fish altogether. Deconstructing and reconstructing. Right, yeah. But I think when we talk about pastiche specifically um, and that sort of meta textuality that we find in a lot of postmodern things, it is really just we list the things and then maybe just describe some of the ways in which it's being used or maybe subverted. But there's not a whole lot more to it than that, it seems. But I think it's also a dangerous tool for a filmmaker to utilize because if they don't do it well, you're reminded of all the other things that it is. The better movie I wish I was watching. Yeah. And I think that's the danger you get into if you're not smart about how it's implemented. Yeah, that's that's probably very, very fair. Just kind of that empty homage rather than what we see here where it's so well ingrained in the script. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Dalton, I want to go ahead and let you, if you have another fun thing, let's do another fun yeah, thing. Yeah, this, you... this is a pretty easy softball. I, th- this movie does something that is like one of my very, very, very favorite things, which is when big encroaches on small. Um, think of something like, uh, I, I'm, this is only the reason this comes to mind is because I watched it recently, but the the, re- the crazies, remake or original, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that uh, uh, government tomfoolery, uh, this is a George Romero film, it's kind of a... a pr- I haven't seen it. Oh, really? I've only seen the remake. Same. Um yeah, the town gets poisoned by the government, and everybody goes uh, rage zombie. Oh, okay, um, but you know they can Flint? they can talk and use. I'm, oh gosh! I mean, <laughs> look, you're it, not wrong. No, this, this is the thing, though, right? Big encroaching on small. Whether it is yeah. the crazies or a documentary about a very real water crisis, you know, whatever we're talking about, these are interesting narratives. Uh, they're usually tragic in the real world, and in film, they're you know, uh, murderous militarized toys. It's it's just a fun bit of filmmaking right it's just good formal fun it's just good fundamental screenplay writing good fundamental basketball it's boring as fuck but at the same time you have to get the fundamentals right and just uh, it's a good place to start your story from here's the big bad evil that exists in the world here's the wholesome uh quiet community that is uh safe from the evil until it's not and then you're off to the races. And again, as we mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier in review, I think that's a big strength of this film is introducing all of the, the keys and how they're going to fit together within 15 minutes. It's just really impressive. So uh, similar to like, I'm, I'm trying to think of other films that do the same yeah, kind of thing. I'm so like Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren in Universal Soldier would be an example. Yeah, actually, for sure. Well, okay. I would even say John Wick, right? I mean, okay, yeah, John yeah. Wick is, you know, having a, it used to be an assassin, but when the movie starts, he's having a quiet life. Yeah. But uh, the assassin's world comes back and knocks on his door, right? He's having a small, quiet life, living in a small, quiet movie about grief. And uh, here comes this action movie knocking on his front door. Well, I, I mean, the Daybreakers. I mean, I think yeah. you have the same idea. I think anytime you have this shadowy organization that's running things and, impl- and incites our incident to get our protagonist going, you know, equilibrium. Uh, Green Room. You got a, this is a boot band. I Green Book for just a second. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Uh, yeah, this is a movie. I still haven't seen <laughs> it. Probably never going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, there you go. That's something. No, uh, you got, this movie seems like it's uh, about a band on the road and uh, a hard scrabble life that's being on tour nope nope turns out uh it's all about how uh violent extremist racism uh exists in the world and will find you unfortunately yeah it's uh 
Yeah, it's it's just a good aliens. Even I mean, yeah. uh, the world can already be kind of big, but it's about how the big shit show will creep in on your life with all of your other plates that you're spinning. Well, I th- I think it's also interesting for this small soldiers, you know, to fall in '98, where a year from '99. We've talked a lot about that year, yeah, and that kind of existential dread that's built up over in the nation over a decade, two decades since the '80s, uh, and, and this is another movie that's really toying with that idea of. Maybe capitalism's not great. Maybe it is attacking middle America. Maybe it is hindering some stuff in ways we didn't expect. And I, I think this is definitely Dante satirizing a lot of those ideas uh, and playing with it in some ways that kind of foreshadow what we're going to see take hold in 99 and when the, the decade kind of comes to an end. Well, I think we talked about this on, I want to say it was Long Kiss Goodnight, but maybe it was the week prior. Uh, but it was definitely during our Gina Davis marathon. Someone, one of you, wasn't me, uh, mentioned this idea that uh, we almost got like a whole decade of movies about uh, how capitalism's uh, all screwed up until the war happened. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it was you uh, on Long Kiss Goodnight, Dustin, mm-hmm. talking about uh, the film being critical of the military-industrial complex. Yeah. Much like Small Soldiers is. Go figure. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to watch, as Arthur was pointing out, that last like five years, especially of the 90s, and the kind of movies that came out of there, and then just how different film got. Because of, you know, look, when the the larger uh, sociopolitical discourse gets punched in the face by uh, the world, you start changing the conversations you're having, not always for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very good, very good. Uh, I want to move into that conversation about military-industrial complex. This is a good segue. Uh, my original uh, class that I was pitching, Dustin, was going to be The Future is Here. Uh, there's a line of... Uh, Dennis Leary's tech toys in the military. Yeah, I mean, and that's I mean, that's a child. Paper. Don't. Oh call, yeah. Don't that's why I didn't do that as my expanding the syllabus. Like, it was like, there's this is actually really good. I'm not going to do the research on this. I mean, Dennis Leary's got this line: "Don't call it violence, call it action." Right. Oh, so good. And uh, which so I mean ties into a handful of things. Uh, so the the uh, the ins- the inscription of masculinity and mm-hmm. how that is uh, sort of inscribed upon boys, um, because the GI Joe when it was being sold, they were making a a big effort. I did go see that particular episode yeah. of the toys uh, that made us. Um, that it's an action figure, not a doll, All right? Because girls play with dolls and boys can play with action figures with real kung fu grip. Um, <laughs> How many times have uh, you guys said it's not a doll in your life? Never in my life. Never. Not that I mean. Not that wow. I remember. No, I was an eighties, late eighties, early nineties kid. By that point, it was like saturated in the in the culture. I know. I mean, yeah. not my, my dad's toys. My dad still years. roasted me. Damn, oh, yeah? I thought it was just me. Well, your dad's older, too. That's true, and he's also mean. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I just returned to more as just toys yeah. than anything. That's fair. It's my dad's toys. spiteful talk of my Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers. and mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, they were ridiculous, and they made fun of it. Gotcha. But it wasn't because... They never hit you with a doll? Yeah, no, no, yeah. because I mean, there was a boy's aisle and a girl's aisle. Uh, I, wasn't mean, a, I, don't, was... I don't feel like it was a, a, a girl thing. It was a, a child plays with dolls, you uh, fool. Well, I that... think by the time we were around, I mean... The toy itself was a drastically different thing. I mean, yeah. I'm playing with you know four, five, six inch you know plastic figures rather than the larger twelve inch Barbie yeah. doll or whatever right. size you know figure. Yeah, Star Wars had already come and gone and changed yeah. the uh, the toy market. That I mean, in even the relaunch, I think in the wake of I can't remember, but when GI Joe relaunched with the three and a half. Uh, inch figures. Oh yeah, well. when they had the cartoon, yeah, the, yeah. the, the feature length commercials because um, Kenner had done such a good job with Star Wars then, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I mean, just this idea of teaching young boys, and then later, sort of, you know, a, a more you know homogenous sort of gender, not homogenous, more a fluid kind of gender dynamic. Um, the actions of violence to uh, to 
teach children how to rehearse violent acts. It seems to me that that is part of the sort of insidious ploy of the military-industrial complex where the tech industry, the military tech industry, does meet toys. Um, and that you, you teach kids how to uh, find an enemy and to... Look, I want, I want to say you're off base, and I want to say, that's too crazy. It's a total coincidence. It sucks. It's a real thing, but it's a coincidence. I want to say that. I want to not be this string with a corkboard guy. But then I remember that uh, there was this game for Xbox called America's Army that the Army helped develop using uh, the same guys that uh, programmed their, their simulations that were in use at the time. So it's kind of... Then a... you find yourself in a real... Is it, is it Ender's Game, or is it the, uh, the follow-up to Ready Player One where the... The little column A, little column B, baby. They're playing video games and find out they've been prepped for war their entire lives. I mean, maybe. Where's the lie, though, right? <laughs> also, this game was rated T for teen. Oh, gosh. Yep. So uh, you got to sell them little boys a sanitized version of being in the army. I mean, it did, Was there a special kiosk at the mall where you had to go to buy it? No, it was just a GameStop. <laughs> no, you didn't have to go to Burger King to get it. You operate, you know, sort of virtual drones for fun and entertainment um, so that someday you can operate real drones look i don't know that i could fly a drone but i played enough video games i bet i'd figure it out pretty quick yeah it's not that tricky i mean uh when i, I it's I, not that tricky I, is it well i've played a few i'll, I'll play with a flight a sim drones yeah. and i mean a lot of the drones i've seen have you know, the controller very similar to an xbox controller so there is that and all you're doing is looking through a screen when you do that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and that sort of, uh, I mean, video games specifically, now we're moving away from small soldiers and the action figure sort of stuff. It's but, all tangentially connected, though. But that use of the screen as a uh, screen of division from oneself and the reality that one's engaging and manipulating when you're playing the video games, it does create this sort of uh, layer of desensitization. Right? I mean, well, that's the whole purpose of the chips that end up in the, uh, the Gorgons and the small soldiers, right? It's right. a smart chip. It's an AI chip that will yep. learn and improve any system it's in, including uh, Tomahawk missiles, so they're super accurate. Yeah, and so, you know, and then just going back into this whole, you know, and again, I was thinking about just the, the boys' aisle and the girls' aisle. It was very, very demarcated when I was a kid. Like, it, yeah. was, it was a very pink aisle, Yep. and you could just see, and then there was another one. And it wasn't, like, uniform in terms of its color scheme. I mean, there were a lot of blues and a lot of grays, as I recall. But um, you didn't really sort of know that. But if you went to, you know, your sort of big box department store, your Walmart, your Kmart or whatever, uh, when you went in there, there was that section there for the ladies, and then there was this other section for the fellas. And uh, that's where you found your G.I. Joes and your, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and those kind of things. Look, I still go to the Toy Owl to this day uh, because I collect toys it's not divided but, uh, anymore right it is in a lot of places now i think target has actually removed the language uh from that but i i mean there's still a pretty clear distinction of this is the it boys might be toy, a, this is the girls toy it might be a slightly slower uh more of an ombre onto uh yeah. the the gender spectrum but uh yeah it's still pretty clear but i remember yeah uh but i remember it was a couple of years ago target was like we're going to do away with this and then you know people threw a fit Obviously, as they do. Um, but, I mean, there's still those divides, I think you can tell and see. You know, this line is obviously all Barbies and Polly Pockets or whatever, and then this one's all WWE and Polly Pocket. Marvel. I, I don't know. Is I don't it? know what's on the the on the, the, the girls' aisle. Yeah, gang. Uh, gender roles for children. That's that's a mental illness shit, guys. I'm sure there's like uh, a, I shouldn't have made I'm sure there's that, like but... a plastic uh, kitchen or something and mm, easy bake ovens. Easy bake ovens. Yeah. I, I regret my word choice, but uh, that said, yes, fuck this is dumb. It's so dumb. This is how people's brains get cooked early, man. And this is what we're talking about, right? Well, I mean, this is the whole thing. When you say this toy's for you and this toy's for you. 
That's when the training starts, man. Like, and, come, and they, come on. Yeah, they train boys for the efficient distribution of violence, and they train women to be, what, homemakers, I yeah, guess. Yeah, homemakers and uh, caregivers. Uh, what about the Gwendy doll and the Gwendy doll scenes oh, in wow. the film? Yeah, really weird that we get the... Uh... Do I have to say it again? It's such a gross three words. The fighting, uh, the fuck do I again? Uh, there's, there's, Literally. There's again. Look, sometimes film studies, uh, vocab terms are, uh, goofy as heck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, we, we got it two weeks in a row with this idea. But again, it's much more subversive here. Uh, yeah, we have pre Manic Pixie Dream Girl, uh, Kirsten Dunst, too. So, uh, yeah, she's not like the other girl. She listens to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. Oh. She's the cool girl. Oh, my God. Yeah, you clocked. As soon as that happened, I was like, yep, it's still 1998. Because it sucks because, like, the the interaction between... uh, Kirsten Dunn's famous, so I don't remember her character name. The the interaction between her and the (laughs) Alan character... This is how it works. I think it's Christy or something. Yeah, well, look, when your brain's cooked by movies and like you remember all actors and directors, then you kind of forget character names sometimes. Uh, but the interaction between her and Alan is like really kind of interesting and nuanced, and then it turns into a cool girl thing. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think the, the Gwendy dolls are super interesting, Dustin. I'm glad you brought them up. Uh, what do you want to say about them? Well, I mean, first of all, we got to talk about just the encounter, the initial encounter of them as mannequins by the, um, small soldier commandos. Pretty gross. Right. Um, which they, well, well they take leave for the weekend. Yeah, yeah, the predictable reactions <laughs> is, yes. is that they, they want to bone these dolls. There's nothing more manly than that, isn't there? Um, boning a doll? <laughs> I mean, yes. There's a market for that online. You have officially entered the. That's that's the secret bonus question to how do you become a, a hyper masculine alpha? You just fuck toys, you idiot. Oh, be a person. Communicate with people regardless of what parts they have or what clothes they wear. You oh, idiots. My goodness. Ugh, sorry, I'm so, on a soapbox today for some reason. And so, um, you know, then they do again as the second Frankenstein reference of the film, which is great. You know, the the initial reference where the Gorgons are watching Frankenstein, yep. Um, and uh, the one that has been sort of rebuilt with the parts of a radio and saying "I feel your pain" to the Frankenstein's monster, so which funny. is fantastic. And then the "It's alive, it's alive" scenes of having, uh, you know, you clone the technology out of one of the fallen commandos into the Gwendy dolls, and they do um remain hypersexualized because they're basically naked. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, well, yeah. some of them are entirely naked, and then there's one that has more lines in another and, than the rest of them, I guess I should say. Yeah, they all and, have some variation of like a magic marker uh, camo bikini. Yeah, yeah, spray on bra kind of, yeah, whatever that happens to be. But it is uh, this hypersexualized, and what they do though when they have their lines. When they're speaking is, you know, oh, I hate you. Oh, you know, um, will you take me to the prom? It's, it's, you know, that as is very, very sort of some of the, you know. D- it's very coded as ladies be crazy. Huh? Yeah, well, ejected lines from Clueless is what it felt like to well, me. Well, but there's also this mix of. Uh, valley girl speak. Yeah, yeah. There's valley girl speak, but there's, again, as you mentioned, the take me to the prom, I hate you. Like there's this, uh, this very much. Coded in the ways in which, uh, as we talked about a shit ton during our Jane Davis marathon, there's a coding to the ways women are violent, right? And uh, again, I'm going to go ahead and give the film credit where it's due, because uh, I think this movie is pretty smart 80% of the time. I want to give them credit and assume that they're, that's a, a, a deliberate subversion. Oh, I think so, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, it feels like it. Yeah, I, it, it's so on the nose that it would be such a shame if they got some of the lines wrong, or like at least they were wrong-headed. But I don't know. For me, they play as a deliberate subversion. Yeah, yeah. I, I think absolutely yeah. the intentionality is there. And, and to say that, you know, just in the same way that the sort of in, um, inscribed masculinity that we're dealing with yeah. for the most part for the text, it's not something that's not also applicable to women. And uh, and so and, you know, and young girls. And so doing that, I think, was actually a really, really kind of smart move. 
uh, on the part of Dante and the screenwriters uh, dealing with that. It's also just super interesting and dark that all their faces are uh, donked up. Uh, yeah. I like to think they did it to themselves, like the Reavers and Firefly. <laughs> yeah, the AI consciousness like couldn't handle being in the the, the grotesqueness that is a uh, the form of a Barbie. I just had that's to destroy funny. something beautiful. Yeah, that's, I, that's my that's my new head. That's my head cannon, baby. I think it's interesting to talk about this just a couple weeks after the announcement of uh, the Noah Baumbach, uh, Greta Gerwig, yeah. Margot Robbie Barbie movie. Yeah, uh, which I think should be quite the uh, subversive tale of of that that narrative. I hope so. That film is going to be wild. It's going to be bonkers yeah. for sure, for sure. So, okay, well, there is that. Um, now, the next thing I think we want to talk about um, is the lefty-righty sort of allegory that this uh, film seems to be um, indicating, yeah. right? And so, I mean, well, okay, I've named it. Can you guys describe yeah, it? Yeah, the Gorgons uh, seek peace and understanding and fellowship and commonality and sharing and caring and all that good stuff. Uh, and the Commando Elite, like, blowing shit up. Yeah. If you don't look like them, you're going to get shot. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty yeah, much that's it, it right? you know. And uh, sort of like and again as science fiction characters with the Gorgons, they are the sort of lefty version of science fiction films. They're yep. not an invasive force, but they're trying to seek understanding and peace and learning. Um they love Microsoft yeah. and Carta, uh, which is so, funny. so hilarious. Um but looking into those kinds of things versus again this other world and, and again, the, the other parallel is between um Alan's dad um played by Philip Dunn, is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I'll, Kevin, I'll Dunn. Dunn. Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn. And Phil Hartman. And Phil Hartman, yeah. yeah. Who plays a character called Phil, which is confusing. Kirsten playing a Christy, also confusing. Yeah. Um, but we we talked about that last yeah, time. Joe Dante's uh, script and uh, like his casting director don't care about your ability to keep people straight. No, yeah. not at all. But there's also sort of a weird parallel there, you know, where um, Kevin Dunn's character is trying to hold on to a, a much more uh, touchy-feely, um, sort of uh, innocent version of childhood, and yeah. that's why he refuses to sell violent toys out of his toy store. And then we've got the sort of technophile uh, Phil Hartman character, yeah. uh, who, you know, he loves his violence, he loves his loud, and he loves all of his bells and whistles and those kind of things. And clearly those are buffoons um, on the on the sort of suburban level, and then on the uh, toy level, it is, you know, basically evil versus good, right? Well, I mean, you've got Kirsten uh, uh, Dunst's mom, who... Uh, hides in the closet with uh, her younger child and then you've got alan's mom who launches uh, flaming tennis balls at the uh, commando elite so there there you have it again the people who are uh, more in line with the old ways are uh, uh more capable in a dangerous situation which is an interesting read. I well, and I, I think there is a certain kind of play. Then there's this ongoing discussion, so lefty righty thing regarding uh, Second Amendment stuff, NRA kind of stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. You know the use of violence and having violence, and you know the sort of idea of this you know uh, polarized society between the left and the right, and that somehow this is going to result in some sort of revolution. The only thing that the left and the right can agree on currently is that they both need to be armed, which is weird place to be, guys. But hey, everybody. Calm down a little bit. But that conversation in the 90s was, oh, the righties will always win because they've got all the guns, right? Um, the Gorgons, what they do, they hide mm -hmm. and they lose, mm -hmm. right? And uh, in this particular case, um, they give up their hiding and they're losing and they're successful. So it is a weird kind of subversion of that, but it's also sort of naming that sort of understood um, you know, aphorism that is just, this is the way it's going to be. You know, if it came down to revolution, the Tim McVeigh crew beats up, you know, the, the, I don't know, love and peace and hold of hands bunch. Well, it also seems to fundamentally understand the Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he, just his, uh, prep, his, uh, his proposal that, uh, hey, how'd first contact go, uh, here on planet Earth? Not so good, right? Uh, and it just plays that out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the commando elite are uh, going to assume that the the alien invaders are a threat. Military structures are not set up for diplomacy. That's just not what their job is. Uh, so, of course, the G.I. Joe wants to kill the uh, peace-loving alien. They don't understand a being that seeks peace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing I thought, just a, sort of an observation, this idea that you can't defeat programming and uh, the military as programming. Oh, okay. And, and I, I just thought, you know, and I, this is more of an observation than it's something, I don't know, we might have something to discuss about it. But it does seem like that we have uh, these uh, um, soldiers who are moved into a civilian and peaceful environment, but they cannot continue with the war making. And so mm. it seems like, you know, there's, there's a way in which there's a possibility to think about PTSD and uh, some of that sort of uh, soldier returning home syndrome. Adjusting to life. Uh, adju- yeah. yeah, yeah, fish out of water adjustment um, period. And it's observation more than anything, I think, there. but I don't have anything for that specifically, but what it did kind of interestingly make me think of is uh, what, what you said, though, Dustin, is interesting, right? I mean, because it kind of is still in touch with what we were talking about, toys and gender and uh, programming. It's mm-hmm. it's all a connected conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that... Uh, we we talk about all the things that influence children and don't influence children. And uh, look, I'm going to be the last person to say that uh, video games make people do violence. Uh, but that said, what, we're going to pretend this one thing doesn't influence children uh, and their behavior and their view of conflict? I don't think so, man. I'm not saying it's going to make your kid do a shoot, but I am saying it's going to make your kid more likely to deal with conflict in a pretty, like, uh, aggression-first manner. Uh it's it's worth a conversation worth having it you know whether we want to unpack the uh the, the nature of uh, uh programming if we want to use that word that is going into any large bureaucracy that's uh and i don't think we're going to get through that today but that said there are some parallels with that idea and again the toys we have in society whether they are geared towards warfare or homemaking or race cars and fire trucks you know a lot of toys are profession related uh for seemingly uh innocuous reasons but you know not always so it's interesting right yeah. uh we, we we try to decide this toy is going to make my kid be a firefighter or don't give that kid my toy you're going to make them be i don't know something i don't like but uh then we say well you know action movies are fine that's it's not going to cook anybody's brain well yeah i mean obviously i did not want to become a, a space smuggler because i had the han solo and the uh, millennium falcon i mean so it doesn't all work that way but i don't know you my laura croft action be, uh, figures made I me mean, want to be an archaeologist I, I mean i wanted to be i guess but yeah uh, i mean you did I mean, jurassic park did that for an entire generation you, you wanted know. to be a dinosaur yes <laughs> I wanted to clone dinosaurs and open my own theme park and make oh, all the money. You... Oh, yeah, I played that video game. It was real good. Did I take the wrong message from that movie? I think maybe you uh, did. I think we might have both did. But again, yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't have anything more than that, but I think they're they're connected, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's all... Well, it's, it's the function of ideology at that point. I mean, that that's how, sort of how, you know, cultural um, capitalist hegemony works. Well, right? not even the function of ideology, but just like the the function of our... Uh, of playthings, the the function of our popular culture, and how passive or how active does a leisure time activity have to be before it starts to re- to write your programming for you? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that we decide to, and I guess that's what it is. You know, again, another conversation we're not going to find an answer to. But the things we say, this is good for children and is fine, and the things that we say, this is bad for children, will definitely turn them into vile monsters is weird and the places we decide to draw those lines are weird they are indeed all right are there any other burning thoughts regarding small soldiers well i think now we ought to render a verdict then shelf or trash with the small soldiers what do you say arthur man i 
as much as this has held up and as much as I enjoy it, I, I, I still think it goes lightly in the trash. And I think that's just mostly because I don't think it's an essential movie you need to see. And for that, put it there. I mean, it's streaming, you know, quite a bit. I'm sure a lot of people our age saw it anyway, but, uh, I, I think Joe Dante may have a more essential film that would go on the shelf and I don't think this is it. So. All right, fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I'm kind of right there, too. I mean, it's it's an interesting cultural oddity. It's kind of lost to time. Um, you bring it up, I'm sure people remember it. But, yeah, it's just, it's good, though. I like it a lot. Uh, but as Arthur mentioned, there's more essential work. Uh, it's not the only thing like it. We've got Gremlins. We've got Child's Play. We've already talked about a whole bunch of things that are like this movie. Um, you know, we, we found ourselves a lot during I Dream of Gina having... Uh, a situation where you go, there's no other movies like this. It's just not the case with Small Soldiers. So uh, I'm with Arthur. It's good as heck. I'm so delighted it held up really well. But yeah, it's, it's not essential. Uh, I'm actually going to disagree. I'm going to put it on the shelf. And the reason why is because mad man. the particular mix, I think that's what makes you it. You think it's kind of one of a kind? It's one of a kind insofar as it takes, yes, you can find a movie with the possessed toy. Yes, you can find a movie about, you know, sort of in, in, inscribing violence on children and gender roles and, you know, all of those kind of things. You can find a kid's movie that's actually a bit more adult than it actually is, and et cetera, so on and so forth. You can find another metatextual movie. But the weird way in which it mixes all of those things, I think, makes it truly unique. That's and true. so I think it's got a real durability in its usefulness uh, as a reference, as a cross-reference. Would you say it keeps keep, going and going it, and going? It might keep going and going, um, like an ever-ready, not-energizer battery, um, which is very funny that they reference ever-ready by name, but not-energizer. He always zigs when I think he's going to zag. You too. Thing. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I can never figure him out. I... I I see where he's coming from, though, and I'm not going to disagree with you. No, I suppose. think it's I, – I almost lightly put it on the shelf. I couldn't really decide until the last minute. But, no, I like it a lot, so I'm putting it on the shelf. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our verdicts regarding Small Soldiers from 1998, Phil Hartman's last film. And uh, we had a good time uh, with that. Um, so, yeah, we're done, yeah? So – What if we let you watch a Claire Denis movie? What? what we're not. We, oh, we're not? Not, not, not next week. That's coming. Oh, okay. Well, next week, sorry, Dustin. Spoilers. Got you too next excited. Next week, we have a Patreon pick. Uh, Ooh. That time of year. Well, yeah, I Dustin, am, you're on the hook. I'm financially obligated. Yeah, you are. You're, you're contractually obliged to this one. Uh, from Brigham Cole, one of our oldest, dearest friends of the show. Wow. Hey, Brigham. Hey, buddy. And uh, I reached out to him to see what he wants to do, and uh, he went 90s. Ooh. Staying in, staying in the pocket. He picked an actor we've never talked about interesting and so uh i got six words for you <laughs> fat guy in a little <gasps> coat tommy boy fantastic Yay. wow hey we're gonna talk more about capitalism next hey, week you're, you're the one with the thin candy shell shut up richard um, i have never seen tommy boy all the way through start to finish Oh, it's one of the most quotable movies. Yeah, I've mean, seen it in bits and pieces oh, like a hundred times, but I've never like sat down and watched the whole thing. I'm all about it. I'm all about it. And we'll find out who Dalton's favorite little rascal is next week. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.